We're doing a Bible study tonight, so take your Bibles and go to the book of Vikings. I, excuse me, I'm distracted. <laughs> book of Judges. Book of Judges. We're in the book of Judges, and as we continue through a series... You have no idea where my mind is, do you? Okay. We're in the book of Judges. I want to continue a story that we were following up on in Judges chapter 8 going into Judges chapter 9. But let me back you up into a historical setting. If you've picked up and read biographies, you'd pick up one that would talk about Charles Spurgeon, which we've talked about and used him as illustrations at the time, who was the prince of the pulpiteers back in the uh, mid-1800s. And he talks in his own biography about getting born again as a young man. He went to a small little chapel, walked into that chapel, heard the gospel the first time, and he got gloriously saved. He writes about how those next few days he was floating high. He was so excited having his newfound faith in Christ, knowing that he's been forgiven, his heart, his spirit is just enthused. Then he said it all came crashing down on that Friday. That Friday, all of a sudden, he re-encountered some of the old temptations. And he was stymied. He was, he was staggered. He thought he was saved. And all of a sudden, some of the old things came back on that Friday. And so he was anxious for Sunday to come, to go to the, to go to the chapel again and hear a message on what happened. Well, he got saved. He got forgiven. Christ came into his life. And now he's struggling with something that has been under the blood. So he goes back to the chapel. And the preacher is preaching that morning, and as he's preaching through a text, he's acknowledging in this text that there's a battle between the flesh and there's a battle between the spirit. And he talked from a couple different epistles about this battle between the flesh and the spirit. And then he made this uh, application, the preacher did. He said that only those who are unsaved have the battle with the flesh, and once you get saved, there's no more battle with the flesh. Well, Spurgeon sat there and said, I just can't believe that's true. I know I got saved last week, so I misunderstand. So he got up and he walked out of church, and he never went back to that chapel. Instead, he went elsewhere, got teaching under the Word of God, and he got grounded in, in his own study, and then in the study where he was trained, and eventually he's in the pulpit teaching that according to the Word of God, we still struggle with the old man, that we're supposed to put off the old things and put on the new. And because we have Christ within us, we have the ability to resist, but we still have the presence of sin in our life. And that won't be taken away until we're glorified. And so he's been teaching and preaching that now for a couple, two, three decades. And he goes to a Bible conference, and he's one of the key speakers. There's another gentleman, and they're sharing the pulpit during this weekend conference. <clears throat> and he wrote in his biography about how this preacher got up during one of the sessions and started preaching that when you grow in the faith, if you're really spiritually minded, you can come to the point where you become sinlessly perfect. Where all of a sudden you get a second blessing of the Holy Spirit and you no longer struggle with any temptations. You no longer struggle with the flesh. You, you've overcome all sin. And that preacher, as he's preaching it, alluded to the fact that he found himself to have arrived at that point where he no longer sins. He no longer loses his temper. He no longer has challenges to gossip. He no longer has problems with his thought life. He gets along famously with everybody. Spurgeon was just appalled that this preaching was happening. But he didn't say anything until the next morning. The next morning they're at breakfast, and he came into the room, saw where that preacher was sitting, and he walked up to him without him seeing he grabbed a big pitcher of milk that was on another table, walked up behind the preacher, and poured it over his head. He said in his biography that within seconds it was obvious this man still had a sin nature. 
I'm not sure if we should advocate that type of testing one another. But the fact is, there is still a struggle. We do struggle with the, with the idea of our old nature and our spirit and our flesh. And that sometimes we do lose our temper because of circumstances. And we still have those battles. Now, I don't want to totally, and I don't think we should totally spiritualize texts that are giving historical doctrine. But at the same time, this is a text that gives us a picture about some of the battle that takes place in the spiritual realm that overflows and gives a good parallel and a good good. Uh, historical background to the idea that when God is not on the throne, there are problems, whether it be the throne of Israel or the throne of your life. Let's set up the story. Let's look at Judges chapter 9 and give you a little bit of the details, then let's draw our applications. Okay, here's the story. In Judges chapter 9, that we'll call it the plot of the story. You follow along as I read a little bit of it, and then we'll stop and we'll fill in your blanks as we go along. Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, that is Abimelech, the son of Gideon, went to Shechem unto his mother's brethren. Do you remember who this guy is? Go back a few verses. Go back into chapter 8. We looked at it this morning, and we made this comment in verse 31 where it's talking about Gideon has all these wives, 70 boys. Look at verse 31 of chapter 8. His mistress that was in Shechem, she bare him a son whose name was Abimelech. This is the guy now. We're picking up his story. He's the main character. And he com- and goes on and says, And uh, Abimelech went to the pe- people of Shechem, uh, his brethren, his relatives, and communed with them and with all the family the house of his mother's father, saying, Speak, I pray you, in the ears of all the men of Shechem, whether it is better either that all the sons of Jeroboam or Gideon, which are seventy of them, reign over you, or that one reign over you. Remember also, I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spake to the other people in the city. Well, what's going on? Why is he asking them if he can become the king? Here's, what, here's a little bit of the background. Gideon has died by this point. We read about that at the end of chapter 8 that we alluded to this morning. During his lifetime, remember, they had 40 years of rest after he beat them in that huge battle where it was 300 to 135,000. And so now the land is without warfare. There was rest. But remember, we closed this morning's message in chapter 8 saying that as soon as Gideon was dead, the people turned to Baal that they followed Baal and they were worshiping him. And they made, look at chapter 8, you're going to see this term show up, where they made Baal Bereath their God. I'm appalled. I am amazed. The word Bereath means the covenant one. They made Baal the covenant maker. Hey, wait a minute. Isn't Israel called in the Old Testament the people of the covenant? They are, that's their term. They're covenant folk. They are saying that their covenant doesn't belong with Jehovah, but their covenant belongs with Baal. And so they even make that part of his name. Baal, the one who gave us the law. Baal, the one who promised, gave us the promised land. Baal, the one who covenant with us that brings us through the Red Sea. They're giving all the credit that should be to Jehovah to Baal. And so it's really gotten steep here in this paganism. And so as the story goes on, Abimelech, who is the main character of chapter 9, what he does is he is going to come to the people in his hometown and he's going to ask them to make him to be the king. His reasoning is real simple, okay? Now keep in mind that at this time there has been thinking, there has been discussion about a king. In fact, if you weren't with us this morning, let's, re- let's help you out by remind- the other folk reminding you this morning, what did the people of Israel offer Gideon after the battle with the Midianites? What did they ask him to become? Their king. And they said that not only you become your king, but who after you? 
your sons and your sons' sons. And Gideon had refused the throne, the crown at that moment, the coronation. But did Gideon end up acting and living like the king? Absolutely. So the people, there's a mindset about being like others. There's a mindset about this king. There's an opportunity. In fact, Gideon, though he denied it, he calls his son Abimelech, which means, as you have on the wall, my father is king. So this king concept, it's not new. What Abimelech is asking, he isn't asking about something that is absolutely phenomenal. It's been in the mindset of people. They're, 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 in fact, when he goes to the people of Shechem, he even says, well, do you want the sons of Gideon to rule over you, all 70 of them, or just one of them. And so the king concept is there. Though it's not a throne, it's not a palace, it's not a crown that has been there physically, socially it's been there. Mindset, it's been there. And so he's going to them and he's going to ask. Now, a little bit of background just in case you don't remember about Abimelech. He grew up in Shechem. Shechem is only 12 miles from the Tabernacle Center in Shiloh. So Shechem is a a good-sized town. According to what we know as far as archaeology, and it's located in the heart of Israel. And so this town had been taken over by, in Judges, had been taken over by the Jews. However, the Jews, when they took, I'm sorry, in the book of Joshua, when they took it over, they were supposed to wipe out all the Canaanites. They didn't. And as time went by, the Shechemites, basically, from what we understand historically, from what we understand archaeologically, there was a good amount of Jews living in the city. There was a good amount of Canaanites living in the city. God had warned them. If you live next door to them, if you take them into your, into your neighborhood, what's going to happen to you eventually? If you keep rubbing shoulders with the Canaanites, what did God warn them? You're going to become like them. And so what happened is the Jews become like them. In fact, the city of Shechem ends up being one of the major centers for Baal worship, even though it's a Jewish town. They, they control the majority of it. They have adopted and adapted some of those ideas. And we even read in chapter 9, verse 4, that they have one of the temples of Baal Bereth is located right inside that city where they talk about the house of Baal Bereth, the temple of Baal Bereth. That there it is, living, living proof that the Jews have already succumbed to all of this evil and corruption that, has, that God has warned them against. And so Abimelech comes along and he says, I want to be your king. You offered it to my dad. He said no, but I'll take you up on it. And there's that concept of king. And so he desires it. He approaches his relatives and say, you relatives, you speak to the rest of the people and check them. And we're going to start our dynasty from here. I'll get crowned here and we'll just spread out from that region. And so they, he proposes that they choose him to become king. And his reasons are very simple. His reasons are, I'm of royal family. Though we don't have a kingdom or a dynasty, Gideon's family is considered the royal family, if you would. And so he's making that observation. He makes it clear, as we read, that it's better that you have one person lead you than 70 people lead you. So it would be be your benefit to have one person. In fact, for the Shechemites, he makes the observation, it would be even better for you to have have me rule because I'm one of you. We have, we have relations. It's going to profit you because I'm from your town. I'll represent you better. And so he's making the argument that, you know, very simple. And they agree to it. 
Okay? In fact, look at verse 4. We didn't, we didn't continue reading where it says in verse 3 of chapter 9, his mother's relatives spake, to him into, in the, spake about him in the ears of all the men of Shechem these words, and their hearts were inclined to follow Abimelech, and they said, he's our brother, our relative. And they gave him, they gave him three score and ten pieces of silver out of the house of Baal-Berith. <clears throat> They're going to subsidize. They're going to give him money to get his dynasty started off. They're going to, here, here's the money, get your campaign going, get the flyers printed, you know, get, get the speakers, you know, to go out and do your, no, no, the campaign is going to take a different twist, but he's still going to work at being king with the money that they gave him that was pagan corruption money from the temple. In fact, we go on and we talk about what he does with the money. Wherewith, it says in verse 4, he hired vain and light persons. He hired criminals. He hired thugs. He hired murderers. He hired assassins. He hired second-class people whose gun was for hire. And he says, okay, I'm going to hire these people. And they followed him. And so the way he's going to establish himself as king is he goes to the hometown of Gideon. Gideon's dead. But Gideon had set up in his hometown of Ophrah, remember, the ephod. That's where his sons, his 70 sons are living. Watch what Gideon does. It says in verse 5, he went to his father's home or hometown of Ophrah and he slew all of his half-brothers, the sons of Gideon, being 70, okay, upon one stone. However, one person, the youngest son of Gideon, Jotham, he was left for he had hid himself. And so there's a slaughter of all of his half-brothers. Kills them all. Now, it's very clear that this isn't a battle because it's clear it's on one stone. This isn't some type of warfare that's taking place. This is an execution. This is a gang murder. This is a rubbing out of people that on one stone he brings them one by one and he kills them. Okay, and so it's, it's, it's a slaughter. It's a murder. And he returns to Shechem, and what surprises me is the Jewish element of Shechem, who are given over to Baal Berith, who hear about the slaughter of the 70, they do and say absolutely nothing against it. Hey, they had been inclined. They were part of the people that said, we want your sons to rule. We want, we want a dynasty. But they don't move or budge or seem to flinch at all when he comes back and says, I killed 70 of my brethren, or 69. I mean, this guy, what kind of person kills their family? All, all 69 of them. So it tells you a little bit about where these people have, have come to. Where he comes back in verse 6, all the men of Shechem gathered together and they have a party. They have a, they have a coronation. All the house of Milo, they went and they made Abimelech the king by the plain of the pillar that is in Shechem. And they don't say anything like, you shouldn't have killed all your brothers. You shouldn't have slaughtered them that way. You should have done something a little bit more honorable. Maybe challenge them to a fight. Maybe give them a chance. No, not at all. And it goes on and it tells us that he's crowned the king of the region. And yet, during the coronation, somebody stands up. Somebody speaks up against the atrocity. It's Jotham. It's the brother who escaped. It's number 70, the youngest of, of Gideon's children. And if you look at the verse, it says that he comes and he stands on Mount Gerizim. 
And he calls out. Now understand, this is the same mount. Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal were close to each other, and there's a little valley in between. This is the spot that on a couple different occasions already in the book of Judges, as well as uh, when they first come in the land, and then later as they're in the land, this is where they would gather, and they would do antiphonal singing back and forth. This is where they would proclaim the blessings of the Lord. And this is a holy spot in their history. This is a spot where there was a natural amphitheater and they could hear each other. Well, this coronation is taking place down below in this holy spot that they're, they're, coron- they're crowning somebody who is worshiping a pagan god. And Jotham stands up and he starts speaking. And Jotham calls out and he points out the atrocity. He points out the evil that's in the hearts of the Shechemites that they follow this guy, this, this corrupt individual who hires murderers. By the way, if he's going to hire murderers to get himself on the throne, what might he do with these thugs in relationship to the people? He might use them against the people to keep his throne. And so he's calling out and he's saying, hey, listen, there's a problem here. And he pronounces a curse. He does it via a parable. This is that parable that some of you remember, the time that's given in Scripture, that he tells a story, Jotham, speaking to all the people down below. He says, there's a, there's a time when all the trees and all the, and all the vegetation got together, and they said in this parable, they said, we want a king. And so they asked that beautiful, well, you know, so productive tree, the olive tree, would you be king? And the olive tree responds and says, no, I'm, I'm busy. I'm busy bearing fruit. I'm busy do, producing things. I don't want to be king. I've got enough on my own plate. And so then they go to the fig tree. And the fig trees, again, in Jewish society, very important, just like the olive tree. And they ask the fig tree, would you give of yourself to be our leader? Nope. Nope. Why should I stop being so productive and producing the figs that everybody is, is benefiting from? I, I, don't want to, I don't want to be the king. And then they go to the grapevines, which was another really important vegetation in the Jewish history. And their line, mind step, nope, nope, I'm producing the oils, I'm producing the medicines, I'm producing some of this, this juice the wine pre, the, in, for the wine. And No, I don't want to be king. And so the rest of the vegetation, so desperate to have a king, they go to the bramble. The bramble is basically like uh, out west, what do you call it? Um, Tumbleweed, thank you. Okay, it, it's basically that's what we're talking about. It doesn't produce fruit. It's good for one thing, making fires and burning and destroying other things. That's about it. It's got thorns on it, okay? And so in the story, he says, and he points out, he says, the bramble is more than happy to become the ruler. The bramble is worthless. The bramble is dangerous. The bramble is something that's bad that you get rid of. And his point in this is saying... Abimelech is, which one of these? He's the bramble. That's what you have just chosen to be the king. Watch what he, how he concludes this. If you jump down, um, verse 16. Now therefore, if you have done truly and sincerely in that you have made Abimelech your king, and if you have dealt well with Jeroboam in his house, and have done unto him according to the deserving of his hands, for my father fought for you. He adventured his life far. He delivered you out of the hand of the Midianites. And you are risen up against my father's house this day and have slain his sons. He's accusing the people of being involved in the murder. 
Okay, the three score and ten persons upon one stone, and you have made Abimelech the son of his maidservant king over the men of Shechem because he's your brother or relative. If you have done, have been dealing truly and sincerely with Gideon, Jeroboam, and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech, and let him also rejoice in you. If everything here is righteous, if everything has been upright, if you have if you have done well, but he goes on, but if not. If this is corruption at its peak, which, by the way, it is, then, he says, let fire come from Abimelech and devour the men of Shechem and the house of Milo. In other words, you know, if this is corruption, he's going to turn against you. He's going to destroy you. Abimelech's no good. He's bramble. And let fire come up from the, house, from the men of Shechem and from the house of Milo and destroy Abimelech. You're, in other words, you're going to destroy each other. Here's the curse upon you. If this is evil that you have done this day, if you are all participants in a murderous scheme to elevate one people, I hope that you you deserve each other. And I hope that you wipe each other out. And so he makes that pronouncement. He makes that, quite frankly, a prediction. And then verse 21, his invitation, (laughs) instead of coming forward, which way does he go? It says, He ran away and fled and went to Beer and dwelt there for fear of Abimelech his brother. Now that's the end of the story for a period of time. The next verse basically says three years go by and Abimelech is the king. What has been taking place? How are things going? He's the king. He's in charge. But what we read in the next few verses makes it very clear. Abimelech is not a popular king. He's not a well-received well, uh, king in a short period of time. Within three years, rebellion is festering. Now, part of that is, part of the major problems is, God was moving behind the scenes. We read in verse 23 that God had sent a spirit of division between Abimelech and the people that he was ruling over. And that God was going to be working in such a way that tables would turn very quickly. That they would start reaping what they had sown. That there, be sure your sin is going to find you out. That's what God is doing. He's putting some division here between them. And the people of Shechem, if you read down and look at verse 25, they just started, they started a campaign against Abimelech. Merchant trains would come through here. What we understand archaeologically is this was on one of the main routes of trade in Israel. And so as the mercantile trains would come through, the men of Shechem, they went out and they started raiding them, which would take away from Abimelech's taxes and all the different fees that he would get and probably the it could be some of the very mercantile that he is selling. But all, so now their, their attack is pretending to be thieves and robbers themselves. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Abimelech hired thieves and robbers. Now these people, his own subjects, are robbing and thieving from him. And so what happens is they begin talking about not just affecting him in the pocketbook, but if you read the next few verses, they start talking open rebellion. One of those who is very strong, and he's Canaanite by name, okay? His name is Gaal. He, is, he isn't Jewish from what we understand. He is there living in Shechem or outside and is invited to live in Shechem. And he starts becoming very boastful and say, we should get rid of Abimelech. We should have a battle with him. We should overthrow him. If I were in charge here, I would beat him in battle. And where is this brave Abimelech? Why doesn't he come and stop us? Well, in short, all of a sudden, some of those inside the city who are still loyal to Abimelech, they send him messages and they say, hey, there's rebellion festering here. 
These people are the ones that are doing the robbing and stealing of the trains. It's not some Midianite marauders or somebody from across the, uh, the Jordan River. It's your own subjects that are robbing from you. And in fact, they've put one of the, one of the Canaanite rebels in charge who is saying that we should go and fight you. So Abimelech comes to Shechem. He's living elsewhere at this moment. He's got his court set up somewhere else and he comes against Shechem and he has this device that he's going to come at night and get close to the city so as to get inside the city and take revenge upon the people. So Abimelech has this whole devised plan and there's this counterattack and inside the city there's a story as you read along that, that um, Gaal is standing there with another gentleman. Is it Zebel? that are standing at the gates and they're looking out over the plain at night and Gaal is saying, hey, there's people moving out there. And this other fellow is loyal to Abimelech and he says, oh no, there's nobody out there. But he knows it's Abimelech's men. And he's trying to just keep this guy from setting up the defenses and doing anything so as Abimelech getting closer can get himself in a good position. Finally, this guy, Gaal says, no, that's man. And that looks like Abimelech's troops. Well, you've been saying that you would beat him. You've been saying we should battle. So if you're really going to be as bold as what you claim to be, why don't you go out and fight him? So Gaal now, his, his honor is at stake. Everybody's heard him speak about fighting Abimelech. Well, now is his chance. And so he goes out and he has a battle with, with Abimelech's troops. He gets soundly beated, beaten. And so they're all beaten, but the city people, they've closed up the gates. They don't want anybody to get in because they're afraid of what Abimelech will do to them. So they think they've got everything safe. The next day, some of them have to go out and work in their fields. They don't see anybody out there. It looks like everything is calm. They go outside the city to go towards their fields, their sheep, their flocks. And Abimelech's men come out of hiding. They block the gate. Some attack these people outside. The gate is blocked where they can't get back into the city. In fact, Abimelech's men get into the city and they start the slaughter. And the story involves where he's attacking now inside the city, his own kingdom. He's attacking them. He defeats them. We go along with He goes inside and he storms the city and starts wiping out everybody in the city. Everybody. In fact, he forces some of them, it go down to verse 49, some of them go into the inner part of the city, um, let's pretend it's like the baptismal area. They go there and it's a tower within the city, it's the inner fortress. And people get inside there and this is their final holdout. They, they know Abimelech's not going to spare them. Well, Abimelech, he's so angry, he is so vile at this point, he stacks wood around the base of this tower and he burns a thousand people alive. What a king. How'd you like him to be your ruler? And so you have this story that he kills all of his relatives within the city. So, I mean, it's just, it's a horrible, horrible story. And then, and then on top of it, Abimelech is mad at another city, Thebes, that's nearby. We never are told why. He goes and attacks that city, and those people run into their tower, and Abimelech says, we're going to burn this tower as well. So they start bringing up the wood and the fire to put at the base to burn those people who are in that tower. And it talks about one older lady in the city. She takes a millstone, which is probably about 18 inches, and she drops it over the wall to try to defend herself and the people and she hits, she hits Abimelech on the head. That would give you a, a sore spot. Okay. 
And Abimelech is knocked down. They pull him away. And they know it was an older woman who threw it out. And Abimelech, his honor is so, is so broken. He says, please kill me. Run your sword through. Don't let it be said that Abimelech was killed by an old lady. That's what he's concerned about. And so his own troops run him through and he dies. And that's the end of the story. Isn't that a pleasant story? Yeah. But now why did God put that in there? Why does he give us all this detail? Oh, by the way, Abimelech is never named as a judge. He's never called a judge. So why does God spend an entire chapter talking about this dude who is so corrupt and so vile and such a wicked individual? Okay? There's got to be something here. I think the lessons are historically true, and then they also have a spiritual parallel to them. Here's what I think the proposition of the story out of the chapter can be. Very simple. is this. God's people must allow God to be the rightful king over them. It's, it's, it's a fact of life. The Jews were to allow God to be the rightful king over them. And when they didn't, did they get in trouble? Yeah. Yeah, did it get worse for them? Absolutely. Can we, can we draw a parallel, just as, as illustration here? Putting it in modern terms, we believers must not only profess the lordship of Christ, we must practice it every day. We have to make sure that we keep Christ on the throne of our heart. Why? I'll give you three reasons from this story. Three, three, three incentives for not getting off into a wayward track by making sure he is Lord at all times. Because number one is this. When God is not allowed to be the rightful king of your heart, your life, a usurper will always attempt to take his place. When God is not allowed to be the rightful king, some usurper will try to take that place. There's a vacuum. Vacuums, by nature, they fill up. If you leave a vacuum in your heart where Christ is not in control, something or somebody will take control. It's Christ or whatever. That happened in this case. God was not allowed to be the king by the people, but they were open to something, and what they got, they got Abimelech. Yeah, here are the parallels. Just as Abimelech sought to take God's place, just as Abimelech was worthless, was dangerous, was very flesh-oriented, was a vile individual. The Bible warns us that there is a vile individual that wants to take charge of our lives. Take your Bibles and go to Galatians 5 with me. Galatians 5, and watch how it's very simply put in the New Testament that we have our own Abimelechs that we have to be careful of. In Galatians, he talks about this in chapter 5. And we'll look at just a couple of passages quickly. But in Galatians chapter 5, where he says, I say unto you, walk in the Spirit, so you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh. These are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. But if you're led by the Spirit, you do not under the law. And he goes on, he says, now the works of the flesh, and he describes them adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, of the which I told you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. 
And he goes on, verse 24, They that are Christ have crucified the flesh and the affections and the lusts. And if we live in the Spirit, let us then walk in the Spirit. Now, it almost appears in this book of Galatians as if once you get saved, you don't have a problem with the flesh anymore. Okay, that is what he's saying that is the potential here and that we have to live. And in Roma, or Ephesians and Romans, he explains it a little bit more in depth. Go to Ephesians, the next book to your right. In Ephesians, he talks about it very simply, and he's warning the believers. When he says to them, he's talking about some of that lifestyle, that fleshliness, down in verse 20 of Ephesians 4. But you have not so learned Christ. If so be that you have heard of him and been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning the former conversation your old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful us, and you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. And then he gives illustrations. Put away the lying, but speak the truth. Be not angry, okay, and sin not. Don't give, let the sun go down upon your wrath. You that stole, stop stealing. And his implication in this passage is we still struggle with some of those old man issues. Go to the book of Romans, where it's probably developed the most. In Romans 6, where there's a challenge in this passage that is phenomenal about the battles that we face. In Romans chapter 6, he's writing to believers, and he says in verse 11, likewise, you need to reckon yourselves to be dead indeed unto the sin and alive unto God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Let not sin reign in your mortal earthly body, that you should obey the lust thereof. Neither do you want to yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as that you are alive from the dead and your members are instruments of righteousness unto God. You are saved Live like you are saved. Let God rule in your heart. Let the Spirit rule so you don't fulfill the, the lusts of the flesh. Very clear that there is a spiritual battle taking place. And when we don't have Christ on our, the throne of our heart, day in and day out, we're susceptible to being invaded by somebody who is worthless bramble. That's even our old nature, our old desires. Let me give you a second reason. When, it says, God is not allowed to be the rightful king, we believers can fall to terrible, terrible depths. Illustration, Abimelech. Abimelech and the people, they go to depths that they never would have thought they got that way. By the way, you're still back in Romans? You still there? Watch the continuation of the discussion about not giving in to your flesh. Look what he says in verse 14, Romans 6. Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. What then shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Do not give in to sin. Because know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey. What's that next phrase? His servants you are to whom you obey. Whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. God be thanked. That you were servants of sin, but you, have that, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered to you. You don't have to give in to the flesh. You've been freed. You don't have to give in to the old man. But if you do, remember this. Once you yield, your flesh will want to take charge more and more and more. And you can go to depths that you never thought you would get to. Oh, you have that in the people of Shechem. They stopped following God. 
They start a Baal Bereath campaign where he's the God and they, they never thought how bad this could get. We have this worship center and we're following, but then all what, what happens? They come under Abimelech, the bramble, the worthless one. What do they get involved in? They come to the point where they're not even bothered by 69 people slaughtered. Hey, listen, do we have lots of news about dozens of people killed in mudslides in California? It makes national headlines. These people are sitting with, with 69 people's death, a blood upon their own heads. And they did nothing. Jotham stands up and says, you're guilty. You were a part of it. You paid him to get this done. You provided the money. And then you make him your king. And so he makes it very clear that if we allow the Abimelech of our own flesh to have charge, man, oh man, can we go down to the depths that we never thought we'd get to. The reason is because of this. Sin is addictive. Sin is very addictive. How did they used to say it, the advertisement for Lay's potato chips? You can't eat just one. Boy, boy, isn't it true? Sin doesn't think smart. Sin is stupid. Think about when, when we give in to sin, and if we're not walking with the Lord, man, can we make dumb, dumb decisions. Can we lose our brains in thinking clearly? You see that in individuals. You see that frequently, where somebody's having, this is, this is one of the dumbest things that people say anymore, and you hear it a lot. They're dissolving their marriage. They're not working at the marriage, and they say, the kids will be better off if we're divorced. How stupid can you be? How dumb can you go against the Word of God? Well, it'll be better. It'll be better if, uh, if, we just, if I steal a little bit, it'll be better. If I lie a little bit, it'll be better. There's a story that's told by a preacher who was uh, a man that I met, and he's talking about how when he was in seminary in the Midwest, in, in the Minnesota-Michigan area, I'm not sure which one of those two schools, but he said there was a fellow student in the seminary class with them that one day they're sitting there, and he looks over and he's thinking, that guy's cheating. He's cheating on his Greek exam. And he's, he's thinking, saying, you know, I'm going to have to talk to him about it. So he went and talked to the guy, and the guy was, yeah, I did. I, I did. Well, you better tell the professor. I'll give you a couple of days to go and talk to the professor. He did, and he apologized and was repentant. He came back to this guy and said, you know, I'm so glad you caught me. And, that, you know, it was just in a weak moment. I'll never do it. Well, a couple of years go by. This guy seems to be doing well. And it's coming up towards, you know, his senior year. And the same guy looks over, and it's their final on doctrine. He's cheating again. <laughs> cheating on a test on doctrine. And so he's cheating on the test, and so he goes and challenges him and says, you know, you've got to tell the professor. And if you don't tell him in a couple of days, well, the student went home because he, he was just torn. He didn't want to risk not graduating after five years of seminary. You know, how could he, you know, he's the, this is the final week. In fact, in two days, they're graduating. If I tell him, you know, I may not graduate, all that money, all that time, all that investment. But... God has a way of making things come clear. So this guy goes, to, goes home, and, um, and not unbeknownst to anybody at the seminary, he has a girlfriend he's been living with for a year. They're not married. He's been telling this girl that he's a law student. I guess if you want to be technical, the law of God, but he's been telling her that he's a law student. Well, he goes home and he's all upset because he got caught cheating on a test. And so now he's, you know, cranky at home and he and this, his girlfriend get into an argument. He gets so mad, he storms out of the house, squeals the tires, and he leaves. 
she is just, she's outraged. She's, you know, this guy is a bum. She starts packing up his stuff. She finds his law books in one of the, one of the areas of his desk that she never went to, and she opens up one of the law books, and she sees the name of the seminary in it. And it's a theology book. So she calls the seminary office and say, hey, I'm living with so-and-so. He's a law student at such-and-such a university. Why does he have one of your books? What does he have? Do you have any idea? Has he been coming in for counseling? And she doesn't know anything other than he's, you know. So within an hour, two professors come to the apartment. They find out a little bit more, and they wait. And when he comes home... He doesn't graduate from the seminary tomorrow or the next day. He's kicked out. But he's been living this lie for, the, for months. Sin is dumb. People think they can get away from it. The bottom line is sin is destructive. Sin destroys. In fact, how does it take people to depths? Hey, listen. Number three reason is this. When God is not allowed to be the rightful king, we believers will end up reaping the evil that we sow. Now, I remind you, Galatians 6 says, you know, be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also. Now, remember the rest of it. Whether it be unto righteousness or it be unto evil. Okay, so there's this principle of sowing and reaping on both levels. But in this case, oh man, did, is, did these people who gave in to evil, who allowed Bramble to rule in their life, did they pay someday? Much of the story is told to show that when you give in to something that's not a control by God, a righteous control, it's going to turn on you. It's going to bite you. It's going to destroy you. In fact, notice how he emphasizes that right back in the book of Judges in this very story. In the middle of the story, he mentions this, and at the very end. Go down to Judges chapter 9, verse 23. It says, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. The men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. Now look at verse 24. God puts it right in the middle of the story. Why does this come, come about? That the cruelty done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam or Gideon might come and their blood be laid upon Abimelech, their brother, which slew them, and upon the men of Shechem, which aided him in the killing of the brethren. Watch how he says it again. How he makes sure that the people of Israel who are reading this story, they realize this is put in the book of Judges, not because Abimelech is a judge, but because I'm trying to teach you this one lesson. If you dabble with evil, you'll get burnt. Look at down in verse 50, 56 towards the end of the chapter. After Abimelech is dead, look at how the story ends. Thus God rendered the wickedness of Abimelech, which he did unto his brethren in slaying the 70 brothers. He's paying for what he had done. Look at verse 57. And all the evil of the men of Shechem did God render upon their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Gideon. This is all about the idea that Jehovah judges evil. And it was for the people of Israel to recognize that they are going to have problems if they allow sin to dominate, that they are going to run into a brick wall, that God is going to chasten them, that God is going to deal with them, that they're going to have the, the pain, the consequences of the evil will come back on their own heads, just like he says in Romans 6. 
where he's talking about in Romans 6 about not letting sin dominate, not giving yourself into the idea, the idea of letting sin become your ruler. He ends up the chapter, that whole section with this one verse. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. His whole point is, there's going to be judgment for sin. There's going to be separation. There's going to be a lack of blessings. That God wants us to allow him to be the ruler of our life. And yet, in the midst of all this, in the midst of this, there's an underflowing theme of God's goodness and God's grace. Even in the book of Romans, in the middle of that whole section of sin not controlling your life, he makes this comment. What fruit had you then in those things whereof you are now ashamed? There was no fruit in your wicked lifestyle, for the end of those things was leading you to death. But now, being made free from sin, you have become the servants to God, that your fruit is now unto holiness and the end of everlasting life. Grace. Grace, grace, grace. Grace even shown to the people who were the Jews who had for a while followed after Abimelech and made him king. Capital city is wiped out. But what about the others? God sends, by grace, sends more judges and tries to help them out. Grace, grace, grace. Hey, there's a story about a man experiencing grace. Kurt Wagner. He was one of the elite bodyguards for Hitler. He was one of those who was his protector. He had served Hitler for a number of years. He loved the man. He adored the man. He almost counted him as divine. He is with Hitler in the final week in Berlin. He is in the bunker. And he is hearing rumors about the dictator, the, uh, the master, the ruler, possibly taking his own life. And he is shocked. How could this man lose? How could, how could, he, he, I've been following him all this time. How could he give up? And then he hears that Hitler has taken, the, taken his own life. He recounts himself how he was staggered and stunned by the news that he even went to his own area of the bunker and he took, picked up a vial of medicine and was going to take the medicine to take his own life. But he saw a tract. Somebody had a gospel tract down there. He picked it up, he looked at it, crumpled it up, threw it down, picked it up, looked at it, and determined not to take his own life, but instead went out of the bunker and found a gospel-preaching preacher and asked him what hope there is in life. He got saved. He got saved and became a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Can God save even those who are involved in great wickedness? Absolutely. Now, this is not a spiritual you know, story, but it's a story to illustrate something about grace. Do you, Time Magazine years ago, used to send out those, you probably other magazines do the same thing. They send out renewal notices, usually about two years before your subscription is up. They send those renewal notices, and Time Magazine had a thing that they had a staff of 350 people who were in the renewal department only. And so they, these people would write these notes and they, they would send them out when you were within six months of your renewal. And they would have notes that would say, you would not want to deprive your children of having a Time magazine in your home. Good parents make sure their kids are informed. You know, things that would make people feel guilty. 
Well, they were going through a phase where they wanted to cut back on some of the overhead. And so this is in the years when computers were in vogue and coming in and replacing people at the early stages. And so they, they had a computer in the, uh, uh, specialist come in and say, we can do all of this automated-wise. We can take those punch cards... This is the days, quite a days ago. We take the punch cards, we put certain codes in them, and when the six-month period shows that they're about to be renewed, they will all of a sudden flip into a different, a different part of the computer. They'll print a letter to these people, and that letter will go through an automated system where it'll get printed, it'll get sealed, and it'll end up in the post office down below. And so it was working fine. They cut out a lot of different jobs, a lot of overhead, and it was working well until a few years later into it, all of a sudden New York had a real hot, sticky day, and the, and the uh, AC went down in that area of Times Department. And two of the punch, oh, oh, yeah, this punch card got stuck. And so it slipped down, and instead of separating, it just kept on recycling the same punch card as it was stuck and not going through totally. About a week later, there's a sheep farmer in, in uh, Nevada who got a bag of mail from Time Magazine. The guy's own story says, I never got mail. He was an older gentleman all by himself, but they delivered to him a bag of mail. There was 12,634 letters from Time Magazine. He had never gotten mail, so he opened them up one by one. And he was reading all the, you know, how, you know, you've got to have Time Magazine. Well, he wrote a personal letter a couple weeks later back to the president of Time Magazine that made it to the president's desk. And in the letter, he's got his renewal filled out with this note. I give up. <laughs> you convinced me. And he's got his renewal. And he's got, you know, do you have to go to God 12,634 times before he listens to you? Do you have to plead with him for grace a thousand times? A hundred times? Uh-uh. What is the beauty of Scripture? If we come to the Lord at any moment, at any time, and if we do simply this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Isn't that grace? I don't have to plead. I don't have to convince. I don't have to try to, try to say, God, please, 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 12,634 12, times. He is willing to forgive me when I have a broken spirit and a broken heart and it's genuine. And he'll forgive me. He'll forgive you. Don't we, don't we have a blessed, gracious God that is phenomenal, that is so wonderful? Don't let sin reign. Don't, let, don't push Christ off the throne but if you find yourselves this evening where you say, you know what, I pulled the rug out from underneath Christ and I've not been yielded to him the way I should be, go to the God of grace, ask for forgiveness, and put him back on the throne of your heart.